This is uh, page theory two, unit one, part three A. So let's talk about triage. Uh, now I was going to say, so um, I put up your assignments for ambulance ops, um, and they're different from last year's because last year's was kind of a Wemis assignment. But if you have other ideas for an assignment, if you want to run it by me, if it sounds interesting. Well, it's funny you should say that because I was even thinking like a triage board game, like a CTAS triage board game or something. Uh, you know, if you wanted to work in pairs to do something like that, I'll have to think up some criteria so it's not, you know, a thousand percent easier than the essay. But um, uh, yeah, that might be, might be a thought. There's also a triage software that I was looking at today. I, wa I want to try it. It's 1995 US. And I'm thinking if it's, a, if it's a good piece of software and maybe next year people want to try it and it provides a mark and a certificate. Okay, so let's talk about triage. So uh, triage, as you know, means to sort. And you're probably going to do some triage exercises in <coughs> the lab in Ambulance Ops. And that might be a, a good place for um, uh, a board game. Um, if you were going to propose a board game, though, it would have to be one hell of a board game. Like something really, in, really not just you know, piece of cardboard and some ambulances on it or something. Yeah. When I was studying for um, the test that we all had to take before being this program, I created a board game for it oh. with about two thousand cue cards. Holy crap! It's science and stuff, but I had no one to play it with. Aw. Oh. <laughs> I forced my family to play it. Is it still good now? <laughs> yeah, it still it still works now. It's just it's all science based questions. Yeah. It's not, not paramedic based, yeah. Cool. That's a lot of work, but uh, that can be a lot of fun. Okay, so triage means sorting people out according to priority, right? So the the challenge of triaging is you have to do it uh, in a very disconnected, dispassionate way. Right? You're gonna you're gonna encounter a lot of casualties, a lot of them screaming, dying. A lot of them worried about other people other than themselves. And you can't have conversations with people. You cannot have conversations with people. It's that simple. You're also going to be working with police and fire. And remember that you know true multi-casualty incidents don't happen often. So you might be working with a fire crew and a police crew who've never been to one. Um, uh, and what happens typically is uh, fire and police, through no fault of their own, because this is not something they practice the way we do, uh, will say things to you like, um, there's a guy over here, you gotta see him. And the answer to that is simply no. Like, um, you go there and you know, take a look after him, but I have to triage here, right? So this happens even in London where there are a lot of terrorists attack. Uh, one of the medics I work with uh, worked in London for quite some time and then worked in an outlying area and also did uh, like two or three tours of Afghanistan. So he's a really, really seasoned medic. Young guy too, oddly enough. And uh, uh, he, he said that uh, uh, it's very difficult at um, multi-casualty incidents when you've got multiple um, emergency services on the scene and everyone vying for your attention and you, you cannot let yourself get distracted by the screaming patients, the upset patients, um, and things like that. You have to stay laser focused on the task at hand. So we sort people out based on very limited data. We're only doing a primary survey, and we're doing 
very little in terms of intervention. So, um, you know, MCI is really defined by the number of casualties uh, where it exceeds the number of available resources. So if there are two of you and four patients or more, you have a little tiny MCI. Now, we go to a lot of little MCIs, motor vehicle collisions, where there are four or five patients, but with those little ones, you're not pulling out triage tags, you're not doing a, like a full formalized triage situation. But, uh, you know, when you start to get one crew and maybe eight people or 10 people, then you're looking at triage tags. All right, there's, there's no uh, fixed number. It's really uh, somewhat opinion-based. So uh, triage looks at their medical needs and the urgency for, uh, of each individual. And uh, it, it's designed to bring order to chaos so that everyone get, gets cared for. Um, but within the categories, I'll come to this in a second, um, uh, the overall objective is to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Um, the, uh, one of the guiding principles though is we, we categorize them as severe, less urgent, uh, walking wounded or dead or dying, uh, but we don't triage them uh, to different degrees within those categories. So we, they're all critical, you know, we've got five patients that are critical uh, and they're all equally critical as far as we're concerned when we do the initial triage. Triaging is a dynamic process though, so you're gonna re-triage later. But, um, so it helps with resource allocation, it uh, provides a, a framework for a very stressful situation, and this is where your training hopefully kicks in. Uh, you're able to make decisions without uh, emotions, and um, this is where you really have to shut down your emotions and not, uh, you know, you don't turn off your compassion, but you have to turn off your empathy a little bit. You can't feel for, uh, you know, get an emotional feeling for a child who's injured versus an elderly person who's injured, uh, a awake person in pain versus someone who's unresponsive. Uh, you know, we have to treat them dispassionately uh, so that we get through the process and save as many lives as possible. So, um, uh, a disaster or an MCI is where the needs, uh, number of patients overwhelm local response resources. And um, um, uh, daily emergencies are not usually constrained by uh, resource availability, as we know, but uh, an MCI is a different story entirely. So um, we sort them out according, based on uh, probable needs for immediate care. It's not a perfect situation. Mistakes are gonna be made. Mistakes are, acceptable. Um, you might even define or um, decide that someone is dying and is not viable and you leave them alone. You classify them as blue, uh, but they may still be alive two hours later. Uh, and when all the ambulances have gone to the hospital and there's a couple of ambulances left, you're probably going to transport that one person. They may still be dying. They may even survive. You don't know. It's not a perfect system. So just be aware that mistakes get made. Uh, we also on that note, you also have to recognize the futility. If you've got someone who, you know, uh, is unresponsive, has what appears to be uh, a major, major injury with significant, significant blood loss, and um, they're breathing, they have a very faint pulse, but when you, uh, but their airway's obstructed, and when you open their airway, um, you're not able to keep their airway open, um, then you leave those patients as, as dying, categorize them as dying. So um, 
you might flip them on their side, but if they, if they remain apneic after flipping them on their side and, and opening their airway, then they're considered non-viable. So some assumptions we make, uh, the medical needs will outstrip immediate available resources. Um, additional resources will become available eventually. And um, the tags that we use for triage, many of the services use the medical emergency triage tag, or the MET tag it's called. Um, some services use the, the START system. The START system is recognized by the uh, Center for Disease Control. It's a simple triage and rapid tri triage treatment tool. Uh, very similar to what we use, but uh, with some slight variation. And um, uh, the START tag, or the jump start, is the only one recognized uh, for pediatrics. And um, a lot of people argue that the trouble with triage is it doesn't recognize um, the quote-unquote uninjured patient and it's not really suitable for CBRN incidents. CBRN is chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear incidents because there we're dealing with um, you know hot zones where uh, fire would work and then warm zones and cold zones. Warm zones where hazmat medics might work, cold zone where you and I would work so far far away. Um, so again, you know, no matter what the tool you use, as long as you're able to assess and categorize patients quickly and sort them out, uh, that's what we'll do. Now, uh, the good thing is with the uninjured patients, uh, one of the very first things you do when you arrive on scene is mm -hmm. just shout as loud as you can to all those people who can walk. Um, you know, you just say to them, if you're able to walk to me, walk to me. And uh, we put all those people in one area, even if they're hopping and they've got a tip-fib fracture, but they're able to hop on one leg, they're considered low priority. Like they might wait three, four hours, depending on the circumstances. Now, that's not gonna happen in an urban center. Treatment and transport would be a lot faster, but in a rural area, it could be many, many hours before those people are transported. So every Amelson province has the same multi-casualty incident kit, and it's usually inside one of the side doors, and it looks like this. So it's got, uh, it's a duffel bag, and there's a vest for a site coordinator, there's two vests for multi-purposes, and there are little tags you can slip into, a uh, plastic slip in the vest. Uh, 50 triage tags. So at this train crash I mentioned earlier in uh, Burlington, I think there were 106 patients or something, I'm just guessing, but there were quite a few, and one triage person cannot triage all those people, because if you think optimistically, you want to triage people in about 30 seconds. Uh, if you take 30 seconds for 100 people, how many minutes is that? What's that? 50 minutes. 50 minutes, yeah. Yeah, 30 seconds for 100 people. Everyone's going, oh my God, don't do math on us, Rob. <laughs> This is not like the uh, Stephen Hawking's math we saw on the board before we came in the classroom. <laughs> I was looking at their textbook and it said basic technical math and I thought, that's, that's basic technical math? Oh my God. I, I would have like synapses exploding in my head. I had to go through that book. Uh, yeah, so think about that. 50 minutes, that's almost an hour to triage 100 patients. That's way too long, right? So in a big, big, big incident like that train crash, you've got to have five, six, seven, eight people triaging. So, but you've got to figure out uh, how to do it in a way that you're not re-triaging, right? You're not, uh, oh, this guy's got a tag, let's go over here. So you've got to break that area up into quadrants or something. So you take everything from the, 
the fourth car that way. You take everything from car five to car eight. You take everything from, you know, so on and so forth. You gotta work that out. <coughs> uh, two black grease pencils. We use grease pencils because of its pouring rain. Uh, pen or pencil might just smudge and may not show up. Uh, there's six light stips, sticks with clips. So uh, you might put light sticks on people. There's, um, there's a company, um, that uh, displays their triage stuff all the time at the conferences I attend. And they have, um, instead of having triage tags, they actually have colored lights. So red flashing lights and green flashing lights and yellow flashing lights, which is very cool. And uh, you can just put them, uh, I, I think you just hang them around their neck or something or put them somewhere. Um, one emergency response guide. Now, um, for this course, I can't remember if I put it in the syllabus or not, but it's a good idea for you to download the emergency response guide to your phone. I can't remember what the most current one is. It might be 2015 or something. Anyone happen to have it as an app? If you're on a long road trip, uh, it's kind of fun for your passenger to identify um, the hazards on the back of trucks, you know, so you can see what, what they're carrying. I think it's kind of fun. My daughter's really good at it. She thinks it's a little lame now that she's 17, but what does she know? It'll, be, it'll become fun again when she has her own kids, I'm sure. Um, there's a set of four MCI reference cards, and this is what the triage tags look like now. Not every service carries these uh, MET tags. Uh, some carry different tags, but the triage principles are more or less the same. The only trouble with these is, um, you're probably never gonna spend that much time on scene. You're gonna be starting IVs or giving IM drugs or you know, writing a provisional diagnosis or anything like that. Uh, you're probably just gonna have a patient's name on there somewhere uh, on the back of this. And um, you're, gonna, you're gonna tear off these tags depending on what their triage priority is. So if they're uh, an immediate priority, you're gonna tear off the green and the yellow. And that leaves you with the red, immediate priority, right? And, uh, and if you re-triage them later and decide they're not really immediate, they're you know, yellow, then you just, just put on a new tag. Yeah. Yeah. Ribbons, yeah. I think I think ribbons are actually a better approach. Yeah. I think one, they're cheaper. Uh, two, do you really need to write on them? I mean, uh, uh, if you can get a Sharpie and put the patient's name on it, I think that might be helpful, but I think a ribbon's a good idea because you can tie it to the ankle, tie it to the wrist, as long as you're trying to do things consistently so everyone gets it tied on their left leg, or, you know, unless they don't have a left leg. <laughs> um, so the initial steps, so obviously you want to uh, assess the scene for safety, uh, park up wind, wear appropriate PPE, that usually means helmet and, and uh, safety glasses, uh, designate a triage area at a safe distance, direct the walking wounded or the uninjured to uh, a certain area. Um, I would assign, if they're bystanders there or someone in the uninjured group who has some first aid, I would assign them responsibility for that uninjured group. You know, have a little brief talk to them off the side, say, look, can you um, keep all these people here? They're probably gonna get cold and uncomfortable, um, but if you need to move them, you need to tell us right away. And number two, some of them are probably gonna wa wanna walk away. Please ask them to stay here. Um, we have to try to keep them under control so we have a handle on who all was involved. 
because when they start walking off to Tim Hortons with a broken leg or broken arm or head injury, it becomes pandemonium. <coughs> uh, and as I was saying earlier, that's what happened with the trash cra a train crash in Burlington. People walked four blocks away to Tim Hortons and then decided, uh, I think I'm really badly hurt. I need to call 911. <laughs> So um, we're going to do uh, a really short systematic ABC triage of all casualties and give them appropriate triage tag or ribbon and uh, liaise with the ambulance site coordinator. So that'll be uh, someone else on scene. Sometimes what happens in smaller MCIs like 8, 10 people is uh, if I arrive and I triage, I might give a report to the superintendent <coughs> who arrives on scene and then she will take over the triage responsibility so I can be one of the first transporting crews. Because the reality is there's no point in having an ACP do the triage. It's a uh, PCP level skill and the ACP should be reserved for, you know, the patient who needs a needle thoracostomy or, you know, needs a, a serious intervention. So um, the whole concept of triage is evolving right now and, and uh, what we do now for triage will be different from province to province, city to city, and from state to state, and it's gonna change as we go. I think I mentioned in the last class that, uh, um, you know, what's happening now in some places is they're just saying, sort them out, but transport them exactly from where they are. So find out who all the critical patients are and just start moving them, just start moving them. Uh, they're critical, they all go to the trauma center. If they're not critical, they all go to some other hospital. You know? So uh, what I'm saying is when you get hired, uh, next year um, and you do some discussion about triage uh, in your continuing medical education it may be very different from what I'm talking about right now so it's a dynamic process um, and then after the the entire triaging is done there's a secondary triaging that happens and you know we may make revisions as needed it's not a perfect system and um, uh, there should be a site coordinator who's uh, typically most MCIs, most places in this province, someone's going to be in contact with dispatch and the hospitals to find out, um, you know, who's, who can take what number of patients and uh, that'll be coordinated at the scene. But that may all change in the next year to five years. Um, we cover up, uh, but we don't move the blue tag patients unless it's absolutely necessary or to gain access to other injured. So we want to coordinate that with police and secure the area of police. And we always treat uh, any kind of an incident like this like a crime scene, meaning that we, we try not to move things if we don't have to. Um, the reality is it, it may not, it's probably not going to be a crime scene, but it's going to be an investigation, right? Any big, you know, if there's a big truck crash, multiple vehicles into the truck, fire, things like that. There's going to be a big investigation right? to determine the cause of the crash and determine if there's anything that happened that might have been might have prevented the crash uh, and so on and so forth and, and so police are going to have to gather information. We're going to try not to disturb that information uh, and if we do we make a mental note of it. So if we uh, if you have to move a dead person to access others um, you either want to make a mental note or or put some sort of marking with a body. You don't have to do a body trace like a chalk outline or anything you know <laughs> we're not going that far just uh, you know, find a big rock and put it where the head was or something, and maybe a couple of smaller rocks and put them where the feet were so you have an idea where that dead body was. Uh, so make some mental notes on a piece of paper when you get a chance. And uh, uh, standards of care, like I was saying earlier, standards of care don't, don't apply here, right? You, you can't be um, uh, 
uh, you can't spend time with people and uh, do things. Um, so they're not going to get the the full benefit of a resuscitation, and um, they uh, they may be left with sufficient uh, care. Uh, I, one of the things we've learned from things like the Boston bombing is that. Um, if, if you're triaging and you've got, let's say, four tourniquets with you and you put a tourniquet on one patient and you're gonna move to another one, uh, what you gotta do is assign a bystander or somebody, uh, a firefighter, someone with some first aid ideally, to stay with that person to make sure they don't take the tourniquet off. Because tourniquets are very, very painful and people are already in a lot of pain and they will try to take it off. So. You literally have to, you know, you have to take that person's side and say, look, under no circumstances, let them take that tourniquet off. You know, they're, they're probably going to want to, but just make sure it stays on. So, uh, uh, treatments are going to be restricted to basically opening the airway, and if the airway, uh, if they're still apneic after you open the airway, or they're not able to maintain their airway in a semi-recumbent position or something, um, then they're probably going to fall into the dying category. We'll control severe bleeding. That's usually uh, with a tourniquet if it's severe external bleeding. Um, otherwise, um, if you have to put a big pressure dressing on, ideally you want to put it on and have someone else tie it up, not spend, you know, five minutes there wrapping it around the leg or the arm and securing it. Yeah? So you were saying, like, um, after you've done that, that's considered, like, the dying? Like, um, like, before just, like, or, like, They fall under de deceased. Yeah, yeah. So, and we're basically talking about someone who may have a pulse, but they're apneic, and you can't open their airway. There's no way to maintain their airway when you walk away. So, so yeah. But, uh, yeah. Again, um, you know, there may be cases where you're not sure. Uh, but just put it this way: if you if they need bag valve mass ventilation, you can't do that in a triage situation. So you have to leave them. Now, um, even though they might be in the dying or deceased category, they're gonna get re-triaged. So you reassess them, they're still breathing, they still have a really faint pulse, uh, you know, but both legs are off and blood's just, you know, pouring out. Um, uh, they'll be the last one to go. Um, so airway, severe breathing, categorize the patient and move on. That's basically it. We'll talk about neuroassessment a little later too. So, so triage is based on absolute not relative condition. That means that um, when you do the initial triage, uh, if there are six people who are critical, they're all the same level of critical. We don't try to figure out which one's more critical in the critical category. They're all uh, absolute criticals, right? So now when you get to the point where you're ready to triage a second time or you move them to a holding area, hope you don't mind me sitting here. then, um, uh, you know, you may re-triage them and start from there. Uh, if, um, what would you do with nurses and physicians who arrive on scene? Nurse arrives, she's an eMERGE nurse, she wants to help triage. What, what would you ask her to do? Uh, wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't have her triage, but I'd, you do want to get, keep her involved. What would you have her do? I would put her with the critical patients. That's where I would put her. 
Because triaging in the field is completely different from in hospital, right? If you've ever seen triage in hospital, it's a much lengthier process. It's a different process, different context, different environment. But nurses and doctors put them with the critical patients. Um, unless it's a family doc who's never worked to merge, you know, put him with a serious, not critical, uh, or her with a serious, not critical. Uh, but yeah, you want to keep them out of the triage part because the triage is very, very different in the field. Because remember, we're spending like 30 seconds, right? 30 seconds that day, that's it. And uh, uh, it's just easier from a pecking order perspective. You know exactly who is doing what. Um, and nurses and physicians will arrive on scene. Off-duty firefighters will arrive on scene. Off-duty paramedics will arrive on scene. People will arrive that want to help. And so uh, the site coordinator, not the triage officers, but the site coordinator uh, will likely be the person to talk to those people, find out what their skill set is quickly and say, okay, all our category fours or criticals are over here, go there. Um, so that's the role of uh, secondary triage after they move to designated areas, if they ever get moved to designated areas. So identification is really critical, right? Whether it's ribbons or whether it's a tag system. Um, I like the ribbon system. It just, it's simpler, it's quicker, it makes more sense to me. Um, be interesting to find out how many other services are using a ribbon system too. I like that Simcoe is doing that. Yeah, so you just make a couple of knots, is that, is that the deal? Yeah, yeah, it's good. And uh, maybe the way to do that is you initially you do a ribbon and then maybe you do a tag with more info like the patient's name and so on and so forth afterwards. So uh, the triage obviously won't work without some sort of visual identification. And the other thing I like about the ribbon concept is uh, if it's reflective. And uh, do you know if those ones were reflective? They weren't, eh? Okay. Uh, it avoids some confusion. It avoids repeated assessments of their condition. And it's also a tool for monitoring changes. So. Um, so, uh, triage and transport now is not typically done directly from the place where they're found. Uh, it's done once they're sorted out and put in different areas. So, patients might be moved via scoop, via backboard to, you know, critical area or less serious area or less critical area, uh, and then eventually transported from there. But uh, that might all change in the next two, three years. Um, so, the group, according to designated categories, first. Um, and uh, so coordinating transportation distribution of patients uh, based on the categories is really important to, you know, reduce the chaos. Um, and that's the way it's going to happen in most centers now because uh, unless you're in a rural area where there's only one hospital, then they're all going there. And every hospital has a disaster plan where they call people in off-duty and uh, you always hear uh, news reports of how amazing the nurses and doctors were at coming in from home and helping out. <coughs> Unfortunately, sometimes you even see uh, drunk people coming in from home to help out, which is not <laughs> a good thing because they're driving drunk to get there. <laughs> when they should be Ubering it or lifting it. Uh, so this will maximize resources, minimal, minimalize hospital overloading. And uh, that's basically it. Yeah. So if you're like triaging people, right? And then like yeah. another person has to take somebody, 
Yeah, so great question. Uh, another crew comes up and they're transporting. Do they take the worst uh, that's been triaged so far? Um, the, the answer according to um, the way triage is done in most places now is they don't transport at all until all those patients have been categorized and moved to certain uh, areas. So critical area, less critical walking wounded, deceased, till they've been moved into those four areas. And then the site coordinator, so what they, what they do is ambulances will stage. You might have 10 ambulances parked along a road. You know, if this is your disaster, um, you might have vehicles parked here. And they'll be coming in here, and then they'll be leaving this direction here. Uh, and the site coordinator, will be calling them in one at a time and saying, you know, come in here. We've got these four areas here divided and the critical ones are right here. They'll come here, pick up the critical patient that, uh, so hopefully at that point there'll be uh, one or two people in each of the areas, the, uh, uh, you know, the red zone, the yellow zone and so on and so forth. And they'll say, this is your patient, go. And there's minimal, um, uh, assessment and care and documentation goes on for each of those patients because those ambulances have got to get to the hospital, drop them off, and come right back to the scene, right, for more patients. So it won't be anything like uh, a routine calls that we would do. So, so if you're uh, triaging and returning to or transporting and returning to the scene, you want to get as much information as you can in the back of the ambulance so you can do your documentation later, at least one or two sets of vital signs, but. Um, um, there's going to be limits to what you can do. It's just a reality of a multi casualty incident. Yeah. You will. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to fill out ambulance call reports for every single one, which is nightmarish. But uh, um, it won't be as detailed as it normally would. Yeah. So, like, from experience, they yeah yeah because um, the last thing you want is all the walking wounded going to the hospital right away uh, because they just clog up the emergency department and emergency departments oftentimes get overwhelmed when it comes to the triaging um, when the sarin gas attack happened in Japan, I don't know if you remember hearing about that on the news, but there were <coughs> something like 500 people exposed to sarin gas in the subway in Japan. Um, and um, I think like a couple hundred made their way by foot by public transit to the hospital. And not only did they overwhelm the hospital emergency department, but they contaminated the department because this was a, a biological weapon, right? That um, uh, it was a like an organophosphate type gas. And so it got, it was on them, it got on other people who were just sitting in the waiting room. It affected staff. <coughs> and <coughs> so it became a real problem. Uh, in disasters like that, uh, sometimes what police will do is they'll just block off the entire area and no one can get out. Have you ever seen those movies where there's an infectious outbreak and an entire town is quarantined? And you know how crazy people go, go get? Well, I mean, fiction is, uh, you know, may not always get the science right, but it often gets the, the social part pretty right, pretty uh, accurate predictions of uh, how people behave. So, um, 
So yeah, you've got to bring some order to that chaos and uh, a site coordinator or the scene commander has to decide which patients are going first and that might take some time. It might be an hour to two hours before anyone gets transported. Yeah. Never. No, but that might happen just on its own without you know any us having any role in that whatsoever. Um, but the idea would be to get people off the scene as quickly as possible. Like you wouldn't want to triage and have people there for two hours. Um, I think I might have told you about a call I did where there were I think there were eight people in one car and most of them were unbelted. They took a curve too fast, went off the road, hit a tree, clipped a second tree, and people were thrown out of the vehicle, and there were but five critically injured, and two seriously injured, and one with minor injuries. And uh, bad, bad, bad. Yeah, I know. And uh, uh, we were the last crew to arrive on scene and uh, we had we were assigned one patient and I had to ask permission to the site coordinator to transport that patient so so you, you, you can't work independently you have to work under command structure that's really key to minimizing the chaos is you take orders from the site coordinator or the incident commander or whoever's in charge right so so whenever you arrive on scene some the site coordinator might say you know bill is the scene commander or robin is the scene commander and uh, go to her and then they assign you your task so we were the last crew to arrive we were the first crew to leave the scene and we had two helicopters on the scene so it was only eight people and it was pandemonium any uh but we got out of it fairly quickly. Any other questions? We'll talk about specifically patient assessments next class. When do I see you guys again? Next Tuesday? Yeah. Okay. Uh, What's that? I'm not here Tuesday, yeah. So Friday, yeah. So, so review the remaining triage slide. That'll be helpful.